I thought this would be an appropriate uh, way for us to start the Dharma talk today because my talk is around this. I know if you were chanting this, you're thinking, what foolishness is she talking? No eyes, no nose, no mouth, no tongue, no... Uh, sure, I've got eyes, I have ears, nose, tongue, uh, body, mind. And so we're wondering, what, uh, what are we talking about here? If I'm not me, who am I? Uh, and so the Buddha had a lot to say about this uh, subject, about this topic. Uh, and this past Thursday, we um, did a Dharma contemplation, and there was a, a, quite a bit of misunderstanding around uh, the uh, uh, message. The, uh, and so I thought, <clears throat> just based on that, that I would share that with the broader uh, community today, and we could have a talk about it. It was on the contemplation on the sixth sense basis for attaining nirvana. You know, the Buddha says, it is said that there are 84,000 Dharma gates. Uh, that's, I mean, like, that's a big number for 500 B.C. So what that means is there's an innumerable, uncountable number of ways to attain nirvana. It's not just through any one method or, or any uh, one thing that we have to do, and we certainly don't have to do all of them. Sometimes uh, a person only had one opportunity to hear from the Buddha. They got one Dharma talk. Sometimes they didn't even get a whole Dharma talk. They just got a line. They got an instruction. Somebody said that he held up a flower and the scales fell from somebody's eyes. He didn't even utter, utter a word. So, so because we are such an intellectual people, we like to do a whole lot of reading and we like to do a whole lot of studying and we like to do a whole lot of talking about, about the Dharma. But you see, that's not what uh, breaks the, the chains and uh, the fetters that bind us, that cause us that suffering. It's embodying the teaching. Whatever amount of teachings you get, if you get a little, just do that. If you, if you get a lot, you might have to do a little bit of sorting and focus on the principle, the principle thing. Each one of us has some obstacle in life. There's something that causes us our suffering and it's not the same for every person so he says to know to know the dharma is to know yourself we have to know ourselves now most of us like we like try to pretend we don't know us because we know some of our obstacles we know some of the things that beset us we know how we are when everything's going good versus how when things are going bad and some of us have a, a a great heartache over the fact that we cannot arise fully or have not arisen fully to the uh, uh, to the just to the measure of our own intentions our own great great wish and then some of us know that uh, we have no intentions of doing that you know and so so we know ourselves and this is an invitation this path is an invitation to make a self-inquiry to go in and uh, look, fold back on oneself to see what is it that besets me? What is my obstacle? What hurts me? What makes me sad? What makes me angry? What, where do I see the hatred that I say nobody should have? Where do I find that in me? The Buddha said that, that if a person were to cut you off, cut you up limb by limb, and you felt any hatred towards them, then uh, you were not following his teaching. Now that's a tall order. Uh, but we start somewhere. We start somewhere. And so 
we have to know where we are. If I want to go from one destination to another, I, they gave me a smartphone now, so I can plug in where I, well, I don't even have to plug in where I am. It, it, when it comes up and I plug in where I want to go, the satellite thingy finds me and lets me know where I am. You are here, and here's the destination. It tells me how to get there, and it gives me three ways to get there. I can go the fast way, I can go the short way, and you know, I can, I, I can take a winding route, but it's all there for me. So you can think of the Dharma like the GPS, you know, because uh, if you start looking, you will find yourself. The, you are here. The good thing about knowing where you are is that if you, even if it's like ugly, I'm, if I know where I am, I'm not lost. I might be trying to get to a destination. I might have a ways to go to get there, but I know I am here. Now, there's some consolation in knowing right where you are, particularly because the Buddha tells us that you are there due to causes and conditions. Sometimes we're perplexed, we're confused, we're deluded. We don't know how things got like this. We don't know how we ended up here. We don't know when it even happened, you know. And so that's where the teachings are useful because they, they teach us about causality, cause and condition. When this is, this is. If it's not here yet, it's right there. It's on its way. When this isn't, that isn't. And so we can begin to take, uh, be accountable for ourselves and accountable for our lives. We might not like it, what we see at, our, at, you know, at the beginning, baby steps. Just take baby steps. Uh, we might not like it when we first see it, but the thing is, I can't fix what I don't know is broken. And if I know something is broken and can't find it, I still can't fix it. So I have to know what's broken. I have to know where I am. Uh, on, just in terms of my own uh, great wish of who uh, I want to be, where I want to be, what I want to do in life. You know, we think that, that we're like, uh, there's a whip and it says, oh, you got to get right, crack. Oh, you got to stop doing that, crack. It's, but it's not like that. It is a, uh, we are easily entreated and inspired to aspire to greater things. And it's by virtue of taking baby steps and seeing a little bit of progress, just a little bit of progress, that we are encouraged, we are, are strengthened, we develop confidence. There is a joy rides on the tail of something. You can't just have joy. You know, joy has to be cultivated. And there are conditions for it to be cultivated. Sometimes people do things they think is going to make them happy, but the end result of that is they are not happy. Then they know that that was a false thing. That was a false impression. It was a, an erroneous view. And so we have to change that. You know, the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over and expecting a different result. You know, and so we look and see that we have to do something different if we want things to be different in the past, in, in the future. But the thing about it is we can't even rest on that. If I knew that every time I did something good or useful or beneficial or, or proper that the end result was going to be good, useful, beneficial, I mean, it would be, we wouldn't be on earth, we'd be in heaven, you know, but it doesn't work like that because I'm here with 
other people. <laughs> and a lot of things that we do, we have to do together. So if we're not in alignment, if we're not, uh, you know, we don't have the same aspirations, then it might turn out good, it might turn out middling, may, may even fail. You know, but yet I may have known that I did the best, the absolute best that I could do. But it required something else. It required something from someone else. And they didn't give it or they couldn't give it or, or they took it back and grabbed their marbles and went home. I can't tell you how many people come and go. That's why I say I'm happy to see you come. <laughs> and I'm happy to see you go. Because if you don't want to be here, it's like raining on our parade. It's like, you know. And so you can't be worried or upset when, when, when people are doing what they feel like they need to do for themselves. You understand what I'm saying? If you do, you'll be unhappy because nobody came here just to make you happy. Um, we are responsible for making ourselves happy, for finding our own happiness. And if we've been doing things that we thought would inure to our happiness, but we find down the road it doesn't, no harm, no foul. Just stop and do something else. Oh, but stopping is not so easy because, you know, we, uh, we're so magnificently made that, that our whole body kind of cues in to where the mind is, 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 is leaning, you know, and, and even in our nervous system, and it records stuff. And it's why I don't have to learn how to drive every time I get in the car. You know, it's all, it got that stuff all recorded in me. So when I get ready to get in the car, all I do is turn the key. My whole body knows what to do, how to look in the mirror, how to back up, how to, you know, my whole body knows how to do it. But that gets to be a hindrance for us when we're trying to uproot um, um, uh, unbeneficial behaviors or when we're trying to change the way that we think, you know, because, um, he says, mind is chief. Mind made are we. Whatever we think and ponder on, that becomes the inclination of our mind. So that means that once I start thinking a thought, unless I have a trained and disciplined mind, unless I have a happy mind, a mind that is happy, not based on what the world gives me, because what the world gives you, the world can take away, but when it's based on something something else, something intrinsic that, that has its own uh, high qualities, when the mind is inclined that way, then it can uproot those unbeneficial thoughts. But if the mind is not inclined in that way, whatever you thought yesterday, you'll think more of that. And, you know, water flows downhill. You know, like a, like a, uh, like a snowball, that song said, rolling down the side of a snow-covered hill is growing. You know, so we start thinking more and more that way, more and more that way, thinking more and more about it. If I was a little bit upset by the fourth time I think about it, I'm mad. And by the tenth time I think about it, I'm a raving lunatic. It's the, the more you think about it, the more it grows. And the only thing that's growing are your thoughts about it. Now we're fabricated. Yeah, and I bet this was what they were thinking. You know, and so you just start adding, because that's what the mind does. That's its job. You know, it starts to conceptualize. It, it makes up stuff. You know, it could possibly be that. I mean, they could be right. You know, and so, the, so the, that's how our mind is fashioned. But when the mind is trained and that thought comes up, the trained mind says, Panwa, you don't know. 
You speculating. You don't know. It doesn't have to be that. It tries to go to, it tries to pull Panyawati to a sweet spot. A spot where she can, can just rest in the ease. And it moves it to something good. There was, I had a, um, I had a baker. Um, and I told this story before. But he thought that I was going to fire him. Uh, because he saw an ad up on my screen and came into my office and uh, when we had the bakery for the for the homeless youth and and what I had in mind I hadn't even had a chance to talk to him about it was I was thinking that we needed to bring on a part-time person who would just be on call they get paid whether they worked or not but if you run a bakery and you have to you know, service 15 or 20 stores, you need to know that if your baker's sick, you got somebody else you can call. And so that's what I was thinking. When we were little, I didn't even worry about it. I could go in and bake a few loaves. But when we started supplying the stores, I knew I needed to have somebody besides the baker. I needed to have somebody I could call if the baker got sick, hit by a truck, whatever. You know, and so before I could talk to him about it, he was in my office looking happened to see my computer, and right away he thought I was firing him. So what he did in spite was he deleted all of our recipes. And we had, we had to bake for the next day. He deleted all of our recipes. And when I found out about it, and I went and I told him, so all you had to do, I, you were a godsend to me. Because my last baker walked off, and he was my next door mechanic. And he said, I can bake. I'm like, yeah, right. <laughs> he said, no, no, I really can. And he said, see, and he had a certificate from, from one of these high-class baking schools. He said, oh, I, I do catering on the side, but I just love tinkering, you know, so this is what I do. So, so you think you know people and you think you know what they do. You don't really. Uh, and so, uh, so he was a godsend to me. I would never have done that, you know. Uh, but I started thinking, fool me once, shame on you fool me twice, shame on me. So I needed to prepare in case he was out. That was it. Yeah. So uh, it let me see me because I got a little bit upset. <laughs> and I was thinking because everybody was watching me, right? All of the children, you know, the youth that were in the program that lived with us, they were watching to see, we're going to see how Panyawati going to handle this. They call me Mama Wadi. We're going to see what Mama Wadi does now. And, uh, and I was thinking about something I could use to shift my mind from that one, you know, issue, that one incident. And I, I just couldn't think of anything. And my mind was talking to me. It was talking to me. And then I remembered one time he came in with his wife and with his son. And the first thing I said after observing them for a little while was, he lucky he got her, because I'd leave him. <coughs> the way he dealt with her was not kind. You know. But then I watched how he dealt with his son. And he loved his son. He loved his wife because she gave him a son. It, 
but he loved his son. And so in this moment, in this incident, I turned my mind to the sweetness that I observed in, as he was dealing with his son. I said, he may not be being nice or kind to me right now, you know, but I remember seeing him interact with his son. And it shifted my whole mind stream. And I held that in me, that that I talked about. So that's what I'm saying. So if you were dropped in the middle of the ocean, that's no time to try to learn how to swim. You need to try to do that when you're sitting there and you can hold one hand on the side of the pool and stroke with one hand. And it's like that when we are trying to overcome, you know, the things that beset us in our daily life, you know. And sometimes we're going to slip and we're going to fail. We're going we're gonna to mess up, but he said, that's all right, mess up, get back on the path. Sometimes when you fail, people look and say, like, I remember that one time out of 999 times that she did this. That's all they remember that one time. You know, what's that to do with you? If you fail, you just get back on the path. That's all. And so I just held that and held that, and it shifted my mind, and I was able to deal kindly with him. And those kids needed to see me deal kindly with him because they were like, Ma, you want us to take care of him? Uh, I mean, they were rough kids, and I'm like, no, that's not, you, you, want, you want us to call Mr. Deeper? Uh, because they were afraid upon you, Deeper. He, he, he's stealth, you know, he moves like a cat. He'll be right up behind you, and you didn't even hear him come in the room. And so they were always like, oh, oh, Mr. Oh, Mr. Deeper, you scared me. You know, he said, you must not have been doing right. And, and so they, they uh, so it worked out good. I never had a problem with any of those kids, you know, because they didn't pay that much. It's just, oh, that's my wife. She loved me. But Deepa, it was a different kind of love. He got them straight. I had to put the salve on when he finished with them. I had to, I had to but, uh, but he, he got them straight. And it was. It was a tough love, and they needed it because they didn't, you know, have that kind of influence in their life. So they didn't really know how to be except to be the tough guy. You know, but he showed them how you can be uh, so gentle and you can be so still, and how and and it would still strike terror in their hearts at the thought of doing bad, uh, the thought of doing bad. And so he tells us that 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 when we are burdened with life and with suffering, we can undergo an inquiry about our, uh, about ourselves, who we are, and where we are, in line with the aspirations uh, for our life. And if we don't have any, he suggests that we get some, you know. And so uh, this uh, sutta that I want to read, it says, Maluka Puta, even though a monk advanced in age, was still burdened with life and suffering. And he asked the Buddha to teach him in brief, didn't want a long thing, just teach me in brief, something to contemplate that he might become heir to the Blessed One's teachings before he died. So he was getting ready to die, and he wasn't so sure about what was going to happen next. And he'd been listening to the Buddha's teachings for a long time. And he said, you know, maybe, can, can you just give me something real briefly that I can hang my mind on right now? Because I'm going through the throes, uh, the throes of death, and, and my mind is getting confused. I'm, 
filled with fear, I'm filled with, filled with worry, I have anxiety. And the Buddha said, Bhikkhu, in brief, I will teach you about one who is subject to decline, about one who is not subject to decline, and about the six mastered bases. Listen. These six bases, the eye, the ear, the tongue, the body, the nose, and the mind, are the basis for contact where one unrestrained, muddled in mindfulness meets with suffering. If you can think of any area in your life where you feel you are suffering, it has to do with information that you've taken in through one of these sense gates. You either saw something, you heard something, you felt something, you tasted something, uh, you thought, you, what did I leave out? You saw, you heard, you tasted, you felt, you smelled something, right, or you thought something. Though, whatever's causing you suffering has come in through one of those six gates. So the practice is first to identify where, which gate. I mean, because the ear doesn't see in the, unless you like really special, <laughs> you know. And, and I, say that, I say that seriously because I started m music when I was really young and I, I saw colors with the, with the sound. And I would try to tell people, but after I told a couple, they told me don't tell anybody else that. <laughs> so, so, so I didn't. And, and by n letting that go, actually, it, it, it let go, you know, and I don't anymore. But how I wish I'd held that, you know, I don't know what it meant. But when you start getting into frequencies and vibrations, all these things, there's a, a lot of places that we can go, a lot of wisdom that uh, we weren't privy to in 1950 and that we're coming to understand a little bit about now that's going to make a big difference. You know, like we, we're healing now with color and with sound. We don't have to slice and dice everything, you know, so we're learning that, that there are other ways that we can bring about healing. Who knows, I could have been one of those that healing was my vidya, but in this way, you know. Um, so, so when people say something, don't poo-poo everything that they say. It just hasn't happened to you or for you. You know, it doesn't mean that, that, it, that it's not a real thing. You know, it, it can be a real thing. And he said that these six bases are the basis for contact where... One, unrestrained, muddled in mindfulness, meets with suffering. Those who know how to restrain themselves well dwell uncorrupted with faith or confidence. That's the word faith there means confidence. Like with faith as their partner and having seen forms that delight, dispel the path of clinging towards the delightful, and they do not soil the mind by thinking that the ugly is displeasing to me. So this has been called the middle path. So we think like when something's ugly, it creates an agitation for us. But he said that when something uh, agitates me in a negative way, 
I suffer or when something impacts me in a negative way, I'm agitated. He said, but when something affects me in a very positive way, there is still agitation of mine. You'll see. If you don't think so, you just go to one of these raves that the kids do. And like, and like they are happy swinging off the rafters. And it's like, it's, I, <laughs> I don't know what to say about it, except I'm old. You know, because they were like, they were uh, happy and they were jumping around and somersaults and backflips and uh, just everything. But, you know, it was just the, the agi agitation. I'm like lining them up, lining them up for the, uh, what's that thing they take when, you, when you're too hyper? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, and that's one reason why I wanted to give them an outlet. Hey, just to work off some energy. I get it. I get it. I've, I've had a lot of it myself. Except the last couple of years. I'm getting tired now. But I had a lot. I had a lot of energy. And you work it off in your way. You know, I worked it off here. They worked it off at the rave. It's all right. But once they have, then they come back and they're very copacetic. You know, and a kind of a bliss. You know, because they've worked off the part that's uh, jagged, and then they're just left with a happy mind. And so he says, for one who's unrestrained, if they would restrain themselves in this way, not don't do this and do this, but restraining themselves in a way that they don't go to extreme with aversion, nor extreme with delight. He said, then the mind will become sweet. And life will become copacetic because uh, they have a saying in India. Um, uh, we just got back and, and the Dalits are treated so badly there, but they come what may. You know, when, when we'd see something really, really terrible, my heart was wretched. And uh, my, my attendant would say, oh, mother, don't worry. Come what may. And I was like, how can they be this way? I mean, we got some injustices going on over here, and we about just ready, you know, to kill two people. And, and they would see these horrible things happening. And they said, oh, mother, don't, don't trouble your heart. Come what may. I'd like to take some of you over there. I mean, all your, your anxiety and anxiousness and anger and rage would be over to see how some people deal with life. And, and they probably won't be, I mean, we're talking about 300 million people who are in the untouchable class, you know, that, that caste system. Actually, they're not even at the bottom of it, they're, not con they're considered non-human. That's why it's all right to treat them that way. That they didn't proceed from the body of Brahma uh, at all. And that kind of wrong thinking. And yet, they can live each day and say, come what may. And so he said, having heard pleasing sounds, pleasing words, 
Dispel the course of hate towards the raucous and do not soil the mind by thinking, this one is displeasing me. Oh, if you smell something putrid, this, every place I go there is like a dump in a hundred degree weather. But they just sidestep and walk. And I'm like, do y'all get sick? You know, she says, oh no, mother, we know how to take care of ourselves. You know, we grow eucalyptus plants. I mean, while I was there, they, they gave me a, 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 a tree, a, a bush, and every day I pick a leaf off it and eat it for diabetes. It's oh, mother, you don't have to take that medicine. Medicine's not good for you. Here's, this is a diabetes uh, tree. That's it. I tried to bring it back, but they wouldn't, the, the people wouldn't let me bring, you know, uh, customs wouldn't let me take it. It was going to have to be quarantined. Who's going to water it? Who's going to take care of it? It would just die. So I didn't, I didn't take it. So then I got them to grind me up some, and I tried to take the powder back. But they asked me, like, did you get this from here? Did you bring it with you? And I was scared to say I brought it with me, you know, because if, if you lie and you feel guilty about lying, you're going to get caught. So I said, uh, I, you know, it's a medicine I got from here. But it wasn't a, like a packaged medicine, you know. The, they had made it, um, and so they consider that different than if you buy something packaged there. So, so I, had, I had to leave it. Um, and so that's how they deal with things. So having smelt a putrid stench, dispel aversion for it. He's letting us know that we have choices in places that we didn't realize that we had choices, that we have capacities that we didn't realize that we have. Having enjoyed a sweet, delicious taste, do not greedily enjoy the sweet. He doesn't say you can't have it. He says, do not greedily enjoy it. When touched by pleasant contact, do not tremble when touched by pain. But look evenly on both, not repelled by anything. But look evenly upon both, not repelled by anything. If I was in church, I'd say, say evenly. You know, he's telling us how to train the mind to be able to deal with the vicissitudes of life, to be able to handle our high times without losing our mind and our low times without losing our mind. He's teaching us that there is a middle path, a way we can walk so that we can enjoy but not to excess because the excess will bring the suffering. Not that which we enjoy, but our grasping and clinging and craving around it combined with our aversion to its opposite. This is the way that we train. It says, when common people perceive things and proliferate thoughts about what they saw, they become engaged. They get wrapped up, tied up, locked into it. it said, but Having dispelled every mind state 
bound to the ordinary home life, one travels on the road of renunciation. Now, he wasn't talking to a householder. He was talking to a monk. But what he's saying to the monk, actually, like you might be wearing robes, but you know what? You have the same mind of an ordinary person who is more focused on having their loves, having their children, having their career, having nice clothes, doing things, taking vacations, all the things that they wanted to put in the day. But at least they're honest about it. They're not dressed up in robes and pretending they're all, all holy and, and single-viewed, but yet mind agitated. So he was calling them out. It wasn't a ding against the lay people. It was against the one who presents himself. And so as we move along this path, how will you present yourself? Be that. And even uh, when you fall, you get up and you go again. But don't pretend. Because the suffering will be unbearable for you. For you. <clears throat> he says, when one's mind is developed, if touched, <laughs> I like this. This is where the faith comes in. You know, uh, uh, <clears throat> he said, if one, when one's mind is well developed, if touched, it never flutters anywhere. And peace is said to be close by. And peace is, is uh, nibbana, <coughs> free from suffering. It never flutters anywhere. How many times have you felt your heart flutter. Just imagine what it's like to be abiding in a place of continual peace. It's been a training for me because I was a good girl most of my life. I had a few rough years later on, but most of my life coming up. And you know that thing about good girls. Good girls like bad boys. And so because our life was so boring, you know, I mean, we're like good. We don't do anything. We don't go anywhere. We don't get in any trouble. We're almost invisible, you know. <clears throat> and so it was like that for me that I needed a little bit of excitement to feel like I'm still here and I'm relevant. And some of us have gotten into that kind of a mode, that kind of a habit. You know, we have to always be, you know, talking or upfront or showing out or showing off or showing up, you know, just to be felt as relevant. And so some of us know that, that when you Show up, show off, show out what that is. That's that neediness talking, that neediness showing up. And sometimes we'll placate, and sometimes we'll say, you need to work on that. So he says, dwell with restraint over the faculties. What are the faculties? Seeing, hearing, mind, 
feeling? Yeah, y'all know what they are. Good. It says, decline away from unwholesome mental states, and in such a way one will dwell diligently and will not cling to anything in this world. So it doesn't mean that you can't have things. I, I wish above all things that you prosper. That's what the apostle said, and be in good health. But he said, even as your soul prospers, here the Buddha says, even as your mind is developed. Not clinging, such a one is not agitated. Being unagitated, he personally attains Nibbana, that is perfect peace. So Nibbana is not a place that we go to, it's a state of being. Whether you're a human, whether you're a deva, an angel, whether you're a bodhisattva, whether you're a mahasattva, whether you're a dhammapala, uh, whatever classification of being, not just human being, but in any of the 28, 27, any of the 27 higher states of being, or higher classifications, higher realms, higher worlds. He understands then that birth is destroyed. So what is birth for uh, a Buddhist? It is the beginning of, that's it. <laughs> so you got to talk. You have to understand spiritual language. Spiritual language is not uh, ordinary language. So we think birth is somebody being born from the womb. When he speaks of birth, it's the coming in to being of the notion of a separate individual self based on erroneous information coming from the five sense bases or through the five faculties. And he understands that has been destroyed. Now I can see and not be moved. I can hear what you say and not be affected. I can taste and not be gluttonous. I can think and I only need to think as much as the thinking is required. I don't have to proliferate and the mind doesn't have to run off like monkey mind just making up stuff. Or just recollect and recalling things that happened two years ago, five years ago, ten years ago, thirty years ago, fifty years ago. Still talking about it. Still thinking. Still thinking about it. So we have to make a decision that we want a certain kind of relief or release or peace. Sometimes we say we do, but we really don't, because our only companion has been misery, and misery loves company. Hmm? Better to have a bad friend than no friend, we think. You know, a little dicey, you have to see which way the wind is blowing, but some of us feel better to have a bad friend than no friend. So we can't abandon even misery. But when we make up our minds that we do because 
Our mind has been washed by the Dharma, and we can see clearly now. We can now make a choice. We can now make a change because the willingness is there. I don't know about you, but when I see something that needs uh, destroying in me, I say, I will. And when I fail to uproot it, I'm not discouraged. I look at it and I say again, I, I will. And one day, that will becomes, I have. I have uprooted that. When I say I want to take on certain qualities and be a certain way, one day, I will enter fully into that. A little bit here, a little bit there. He says, and when we understand life and move in this way, we can say that the holy life has been lived and what had to be done has been done. May you be well and happy and peaceful. May no harm come to you and no danger. May you always be able to meet the inevitable difficulties of life.